From Dirty Spoon Media in Asheville, you're listening to Home Fried, stories to keep you informed and entertained during the coronavirus lockdown. I'm Jonathan Ammons. We hear a lot of talk about China these days. Whether it's the president's racist references to COVID-19 as the, quote, Chinese virus, a phrase he has oddly stopped using lately, or stories about outbreaks and their containment there. But more often than not, any talk of China in American media outlets is purely conjecture. Most mainstream media narratives, particularly in the television news world, require an adversary to make their story more compelling. China is, often, that adversary in American news. But whether we acknowledge it or not, China actually beat back coronavirus well before the rest of us. Granted, they had also been wrestling with it well ahead of the rest of the world. But for such a populous country, the numbers that they are reporting are surprisingly low. Infection rates in places like Beijing and Hong Kong remained incredibly low, as did the number of their death rates when compared to the US or most of Europe. And whether or not you believe those numbers depends a lot on your opinions about Chinese media before you even hear their reports. So I decided to head straight to one of the sources to get some perspective. Spencer Music is a native of Rome, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. But in 2014, he took a job in Beijing as a newscaster for Chinese state radio. He's since become an editor at the China Xinhua Sports Network. But suffice it to say, he has worked in Chinese state-run media for a while now. When the outbreak started in China, Spencer decided to return to the States to be near and help care for family during the pandemic, only to wind up stuck here, separated from his partner and the job he now loves. Now he finds himself on the other end of the world, still in lockdown, while everyone back home in Beijing is getting back to life as usual. So I figured it would be worthwhile getting his perspective on some things. And just to make our intentions clear on this episode, I didn't invite Spencer on the show to have some debate about the merits of independent versus state-run media, or to argue the morals of propaganda. Like nearly all of the interviews we do here, we invite people to share their stories and what motivates them. We are simply here to listen. I caught up with Spencer at his family's home in Georgia. I was listening to shortwave radio one night, and... uh... China Radio International is one of the uh, one of the main um, broadcasters that are still on shortwave, and they had an ad about uh, you know hiring a um, copy editor and news announcer. Um, and my my master's degree is in communications and media, um, but I had been working in the family business because grad school makes dreams come true. And uh, I was like, you know what? I'll send a CV. Um, I don't think I'll get this, you know, job working for Chinese state media in China, but you know, what, what can it hurt? Right. And, um, this was back in 2014. Um, and I sent the CV and about three months later I was on a plane headed to Beijing, um, and did that job for two years. So I was essentially at Beijing's local version of NPR, um, reading Hmm. their hourly news updates on the air. Um, so just think of it as like NPR hourly news, but the first news item is always about Xi Jinping every single time. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, and so, you know, like radio jobs here uh, in the States, radio is not the best paid um, media gig in China. You're um, kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so after doing that for a couple of years, realizing, you know, I, I loved living in Beijing. Um, uh, I've had made great friends. I've got a good... 
um, uh, church community there um, and uh, loved the food that I wanted to stay, but this this job wasn't um, paying the bills. So um, I applied to uh, Xinhua News Agency, which is um, China's state-run news agency, and uh, got hired in the sports department. I was not at that time a very sporty person, which is funny. Um, everyone was uh, was quite surprised, but I, I, I'm the kind of guy that I can quickly adapt to whatever circumstance I'm thrown into, and uh, and really uh, really love my colleagues and my boss there at Xinhua. So um, extremely happy. Uh, essentially, love what I do every day. Um, my daily life uh, there. If I am working on the normal sort of nine to five shift in the newsroom, um, I wake up in the morning, uh, eat breakfast, uh, clean my kitchen usually, uh, hop on the subway. It's about a uh, 15 to 20 minute uh, commute um, all on one subway line. Um, it's super convenient. So I live I live sort of in the eastern part of downtown Beijing. I'm just east of Tiananmen Square and my office is just west of Tiananmen Square. So it's a hmm. super easy commute. Um, get into work, uh, start polishing um, sports stories that um, our Chinese and other international writers um, have uh, composed in what they fondly imagine is English, and I make it into <laughs> actual English. And uh, yeah, at about 11, um, I'll go uh, eat some lunch, go for a jog usually, um, and then it was, a, there's a really funny thing with the Chinese workday. Um, you, uh, you get like a two and a half hour break for lunch, which is essentially the nap break because oh, wow. everyone in the office just sleeps at their desk. Um, and of course, every, every foreigner always asks like, why can't I just, uh, you know, work all the way through and leave at three, but it, it doesn't work like that. Um, so you had either like have to like take up running or find something to do or also become a napper. Um, and, uh, yeah, then I, so I start back work at about two and, uh, get off work at 5 p.m., uh, might go have a pint at a local bar and then head home. So, I mean, it's pretty, it's essentially uh, the, you know, the kind of daily life under normal circumstances, the kind of daily life that um, you would have working in any uh, major metropolitan center. When did you see coronavirus becoming a problem there? What made you realize you were going to have to give that up and leave that, leave that position or leave that city? Yeah. Um, so I am still working for Xinhua, just um, working remotely. And uh, I'm unbelievably fortunate to still have work and employment um, and, you know, a salary. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess the first rumblings of it were in mid-January that I caught wind of. I probably caught wind of it a little bit earlier than most because my partner, uh, Perry, who is a Chinese national and also works for the government, incidentally, um, he works in uh, pharmaceutical research. Hmm. So he, you know, hears about these things kind of before um, state media and everyone else is talking about it. And, you know, he got me a bunch of um M95 masks and uh, alcohol swabs. And I was like, Perry, you're way overreacting. This is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and he was like, just listen to me. And I've learned something, you know, Perry and I have been together for over five years now. I've learned, you know, that always listen to him if he's serious. So yeah. I listened to him and, um, and then, you know, the news kind of got more and more dire as January wore on. Um, and, but like things never really, so b before I left, things never really shut down per se. Um, they just started doing 
um, temperature checks on the subway. So the, the second that, you know, um, this was acknowledged, this was spreading from person to person, the entire society, like just mobilized instantly. Hmm. And, you, you know, you on the subway, you had temperature checks. And if your temperature was high, like you weren't carted off into a blacked out van, you know, never to be seen. <laughs> um, you were actually, they, they had like someone who would walk you or drive you to the nearest hospital, get you checked out. Um, and because everyone there is on the national insurance, um, you know, it's all paid for. No, um, no, no kind of no questions asked. So, um, and that they were doing other things like, um, my apartment compound, um, asked me to be monitoring my temperature and to only go out, um, for food and necessities. Again, this was not, you know, like a super authoritarian, like Xi Jinping is telling you to stay inside your house. It was just, you know, one of the, it was your apartment complex. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of the, so each, each apartment complex has like some police officers and one of them came to my door and, um, you know, told me this was the, these, these were the guidelines and also that I was going to need to sign in and out of, of the apartment building. Um, so, uh, that's when I knew that it was serious. Um, the, the personal issue for me, um, I would have stayed in China and ridden it out. Um, I had a sense that this was going to go global. I just, it seemed like it was that contagious. Yeah. Um, but, uh, my, I have an illness in the family at the moment, so I needed to get back to the U S um, because I didn't want to have to deal with being unable to get home, um, you know, at a moment's notice. Right. Uh, so I was already actually planning a three month trip home, um, from, uh, the end of February to mid May. Um, and that just ended up getting bumped up earlier. I left China at the beginning of February, um, flew back home. Um, and there was, when I landed at the airport in the U S no one took my temperature, no one asked any questions. Like it just was as if nothing was happening as, as if nothing was going on. And it's so jarring, right. To, to have come from a place like Beijing where this is being taken very seriously and the entire society is mobilizing and um, yeah. everyone is doing their part. There's, you know, that shared sense that we're all in this together and just to come, you know, to the U S and, um, obviously my friends and family were, were concerned. Um, but like I had to do no mandatory quarantine or anything. Um, if I had been coming from Wuhan, I think I would have, but, right. um, I, so I, out of my own pocket, um, uh, stayed in a hotel, uh, in my hometown for two weeks in, in Rome for two weeks. And, uh, oh, wow. that was just of my own, um, uh, volition. Uh, and it should not have been right. I wish someone would have told me I needed to do that. Right. Um, uh, but, and then, you know, no symptoms was fine. Um, and went it. So, you know, I then started living at home, but I just knew kind of in the back of my head, based on my experience coming back, that this was not being taken seriously here. And that when the moment came and we all needed to social distance and start changing our habits, I just knew that that was not in the American um, uh, sort of psyche that, that, that would be tough. Um, and in the absence of, you know, competent leadership, it's impossible, but you know, the, the task would have been tough at the best of times in America because Americans are so individualistic. Um, right. you know, that's not necessarily a lot of things are Donald Trump's fault. That's not necessarily his fault. Just the, <laughs> the, 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 Ameri the American sense that like I am my own keeper and you know, everyone just takes care of themselves. Um, 
so yeah, I knew that there was that in the absence of um, uh, strong unified leadership, that this was not going to go well. Well, and especially you're in Georgia, which was one of the states that was the slowest to react, and one of the states that that implemented the shortest amount of lockdown. Yeah, that um, had to be kind of surreal to to be experiencing. <laughs> surreal infuriating it was all it was all of the emotions um except happy and especially Um, when you said you've got a family medical situation going on you know i've i've talked on this show before about how my mom's in the hospital right now you know and it's uh she fell and is is you know immunocompromised to the extreme Mm -hmm. and uh it's one of those things of like yeah, that I'm not going anywhere. I'm I'm taking care. Of, I'm keeping myself in a position to where I can take care of her. But it's uh, it's just for, I, for me, it's endlessly frustrating. Watch the state get reopened and and people go about their lives as though there's nothing going on. Right. When you have a family member whose life life is at risk. Yeah, and I know you're asking the the questions here, but you have a Democratic governor in North Carolina, right? So what um. Has he just had so much political pressure that his hand was kind of forced, or um, how did that pan out? There, there is a lot of that. We have a Democratic governor, but we have a Republican-controlled House and Senate, and right. uh, it is very much that that. And he's, I will say, North Carolina is, I feel like, has handled this better than a lot of other states in the South, for sure. Oh, yeah, sure. But I feel like it's, it's, and especially where I am in Asheville, we, for a while, we only had, for the longest time, we only had eight cases or eight deaths from this entire thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the people here took it really seriously and very carefully. But then as soon as all this reopened, and it, I think it was a lot of pressure from protesters and from um, just lobbyists and stuff. And, you know, he started a phase opening system which is what most states are doing at this point um even the more more left-leaning states are are cautiously going through these phased openings and so we're we're, i think it's a fairly responsible system but at the same time it's just so early to be doing it it seems like you know yeah well i mean i think if we had locked down earlier then we could be essentially done with all of this by now um yeah we like there is some truth to the need to get the economy moving to the extent that we can safely. But in order to do that, you have to have um, a good, you know, a good amount of, of testing and contact tracing, but also people have to be willing to still stick with the social distancing. Yeah. Um, right. So, you know, if you, if you open clothing stores, um, that's fine, but you know, you might have to wait longer to, you know, go into the dressing room. You might have to wait longer to, you know, to check out with whatever you're going to buy. And I have learned over the last couple of months that Americans really do not like being inconvenienced at <laughs> all. And it's, it's just the most, like, it's the most baffling thing to me. And I don't know how much of it is from living in China and living in a much more communitarian, um, we're all in this together. Um, the individual is a subservient to um, the collective I don't know how much of that is living in China and how much of that is just my own. Um, you know, I've always thought that to a certain extent about certain things, we, we are each other's keepers, right? Like we can each, we can all, you know, have our favorite beer and go to whatever church we want to. And 
um, drive what car we like. Sure. But, you know, there are certain things like pandemics where uh, we uh, we all rise or fall together very much. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's tough. Yeah. Is uh, have you been out and about at all in in Rome and in Georgia? Or is it are you still quarantining pretty tightly? Um, so, you know, people throw around this word quarantine. Um, I, so quarantine is what I did when I flew back from China, where right, I was right, legit, right. when I was legit in a hotel room for two weeks and didn't leave, um, which had its own set of challenges. I, sh- I should say um, locking down. Yeah. People are locking down, you know, other than essentials. Um, so over the, the last week I had a friend come back, um, to Rome who uh, I had not seen in more than 10 years. Um, we went and ate at an outdoor a place that was doing outdoor seating only. Um, so I've done that yesterday. Um, I, I didn't go to a salon to get a haircut. I went to a friend of mine who cuts hair and he cut my hair in his garage. Um, so that is essentially all that I've done. Um, other than going to the grocery store. Um, yeah, I, I do think that I will, um, I'm following the, the case numbers nationwide. We're not out of the woods yet, but we are moving in the right direction for now. That's not to say there won't be a second wave, but right. um, you know there are some positive signs, cautiously positive signs. You know, I'm not going to be going out and licking every lamppost anytime <laughs> soon, but um, sitting at a bar outside, um, I think especially in, in the summer with what we know about the coronavirus and heat and humidity, which is abundant here, um, I certainly feel safe and I've, and I've spoken to my partner, Perry, who worries about me endlessly. And, yeah. uh, he agreed that, you know, that, that that's fine. Um, is Perry so, here? Did he come with you or is he still in China? No, he's still in China. He, oh, I mean, wow. he works, he's very high up in the China FDA. Um, hmm. so his, he is working all the time. He's, he's a very busy guy in the best of times, but you know, right now, um, he is serving his motherland. Um, yeah. That separation has to be rough too. Yeah, it's been tough. It's been really, uh, it's been really shitty. Um, that's one of the hardest things about this. But we, uh, we video chat a lot and try to keep in touch. And I mean, what can you do? These are really strange, unprecedented times, and there's not, there's not a whole lot we can do about it. Just um, let each other know that we, you know, uh, love that we love each other, and uh, yeah, that's that's essentially all you can do about it. Yeah. What are things like, what is he saying that things are like in Beijing right now? How is, how's life looking there? Is it kind of back to normal at this point or? Everything in Beijing started, you know, cautiously returning back to normal in April. Um, Beijing never had it that bad. Um, There was never a massive outbreak in Beijing because the second that, you know, as I said, the second this started to, it became apparent that this was serious. Everyone in Beijing locked down. In China, you also have the very big advantage of being able to get literally everything delivered. Um, so other than to take your garbage out and to go get the delivery, you really don't have to do much going out and about. So I would do a weekly grocery store run for like produce, but anything that was that came in a package, um, you know, like instant noodles or whatever, I could just have delivered. Um, so it was easier. I, I actually, so I did lockdown for two weeks essentially in China before I came back to the U S two weeks in January. Um, and the, you know, the bars in Beijing never closed. They just implemented, I guess, temperature checks. Um, some of them went to takeout only. 
Um, really? There, yeah. Huh. Well, the, there, there are no open container laws in China because it's a free country. Yeah. Um, as, and, uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, you can just, um, I mean, you can take your beer and open it, you know, and drink it on the subway of course, but you couldn't during the pandemic cause you'd be wearing a mask, but under normal circumstances. Right. Um, so yeah, places just went to, um, delivery only or takeout only, um, kind of like here. Um, and there was a lot of business for them, obviously. Hmm. What's the timeline looking like for you to get back home over there? Oh, I, uh, so this is only like conjecture. Um, I would say hopefully by the end of the summer. Um, so, you know, there, I, China is still closed to foreigners. Yeah. Even those of us with residence permits. Um, and I, I can understand why, you know, China wouldn't want Americans to, um, to come there because America has handled this outbreak horribly. And, you know, they, there is not the kind of robust testing or any, you know, way for the Chinese to know that it's been handled responsibly on our side. So my fear is that, you know, China will eventually say, okay, you know, foreigners can come back from so and so and so countries. I'm not holding my breath that America will be on that list. Yeah. Um, but um, I've been assured from work that, you know, um, I can continue to work remotely. And the only real challenge is I get paid into my Chinese account. So I have to do some magical accounting to move the money here. Um, but uh, other than that, uh, it's, I, I, I am really uh, lucky to have it as, as easy as I do job and employment wise. And it's, it's been tough to see um, so many of my friends who work in the food and beverage industry, especially, but in other industries too, um, who have just been, you know, left, you know, left with nothing. Um, all of a sudden they are out of a job and there's no functional social safety net in uh, the United States in the same way that there is in certainly European countries, um, even to an extent in China, although China has issues with its social safety net too, I think, but there is no, you know, it was just heart wrenching for me to see um, all of my friends uh, just lose their livelihoods like that. Oh yeah, um, I still haven't even gotten unemployment yet. I've I lost seven streams of income and gotten nary a penny, you know. Really? But you know, that's just the way it is. When you elect people that don't believe in government to run your government, you shouldn't be surprised when government institutions can't function. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm wondering, like, what you, you know, what you're seeing as the the profound failures here compared to where you were coming from and how this was handled. So is this like a four-hour podcast? How long you got? <laughs> um, uh, I, all right, so I think we should just go ahead and let your listeners know my political views generally. Um, you know, I, I've always been left of center. Um the last four years of Donald Trump's presidency has moved me significantly to the left. I'm hanging out somewhere around like Stalin and Mao at this point. Um, <laughs> I, and it used to be ironic or like the, the, the level of irony in that statement has, has gone from like 40% to 30% to 25% to 15. And now it's almost none. I mean, right. I genuinely think that, um, the way the Chinese organize their society and state is a better way of doing it, full stop. And that um, their system is much more 
um, adept at meeting the needs of everyday people than ours is. Um, so I would say the the most profound failure in our response is a failure of leadership, right? You, in moments like this, in traumatic moments for a country, you need a unifying, consistent voice that um, is informed by science and the experts, but that also has that um, that special something, you know, to um, to soothe nerves, to calm people, and also to instill that sense of um, uh, collective belonging, that we are all in this together, and that um, what you do, your behavior, affects other people in ways that could mean life and death for some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's easy to pin a lot of the callousness and disregard for the suffering of everyday people on Donald Trump. But, you know, at least at least Donald Trump is uh, very clear that he has nothing but contempt for, um, you know, many of the people who vote for him and support him. The more the more they love him, the more he seems to hate them and to um, enact policies that are to their detriment. But, you know, we also have no no functioning political left in the United States. Our left, the Democrats, are right of center in any other country. And they are completely um, uh, on the payroll of um, HMOs, corporations. Um, you know, they, there, is, there is no true left in this country. So I think the, the, the failure is um, of both sides, of both parties, um, that, you know, uh, there's no one is giving voice to the anxieties that people are feeling. And so that's why um, when the George Floyd situation kind of cropped up, there was all of this pent up anxiety already. It was kind of a tinderbox. Um, so um, I don't know if I gave you one thing. <laughs> no, you're but, good. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, and I, you're, you're right there outside of Atlanta too, which especially with these protests is seeing things are just blowing up over there. Yeah, things things were blowing up. Um, I may or may not have had a part in some of it. Um, I'll I'll leave some some things to the imagination. But I I very much, being a Maoist, believe in creation through destruction. And um, I think that none of the people in power in the United States, Democrats or Republicans, have the people's best interest in in, in mind. Um, the the coronavirus pandemic has made that abundantly clear. I mean, if you look at the bill that um, included the the twelve hundred dollar, you know, paltry handout for us peasants, um, <laughs> more than half a trillion dollars went to some of the wealthiest corporations on the planet. Um, and so, you know, if if it's rugged individualism, if that's you know the the American. Uh, capitalist modus operandi. Why can't these, you know, multi-billion-dollar corporations um, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps? I don't see why we have to bail them out um, at every, you know, every the the slightest hint of of trouble. Um, so, but yeah, if you look at that, I mean, the Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats were uh, cheerleaders for that bill, and um, you know, so there is. You know, corporate handouts is very much a bipartisan, um, an issue where there is bipartisan consensus in this country. Um, so, yeah, but it's been a failure of leadership, I think. Um, yeah, the argument, the, the argument there being that you could just not bail those businesses out 
they'd still be around when all this was over and instead funneled that money towards their employees and the people. Right. And exactly. They'd be fine when all this is over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're in a state like Georgia that opened up very quickly. They opened up their beaches absurdly early. What is it like being in a community where your neighbors aren't looking out for the well-being of each other? It has, it's been a clarifying experience for me that I prefer life in China. I prefer the way, like I said, that they organize their society. I, I prefer their collective mentality. Um, it's, there's been a, there was a lot of anxiety at first. Um, and then the sort of issue with them cooking the books on the statistics, which a lot of states have done that, but none as egregiously as Georgia. Um, I mean, look, our, our governor, um, you know, I knew what kind of guy he was before he was even elected. Um, and I just, uh, I, I knew this was going to go badly in Georgia specifically because uh, Brian Kemp is not an especially bright or intellectually curious person to say the least. <laughs> and he is just not, he is only thinking about getting reelected and he barely won his election. Right. Um, and he did that by some pretty nefarious tactics, mainly overseeing his own election as secretary of state. Right. Um, and, you know, and people say China doesn't respect democracy. I mean, Jesus. Um, so, you know, I just, I knew that um, he did not have, and also he's just not a communicator, right? You need a communicator. And not only that, you need the entire media landscape it has to be unified in its messaging about something like a pandemic. Um, and in China's system, um, media outlets and journalists are public servants, first and foremost. Some of them are Communist Party members. Um, I'd say most people in media are Communist Party members, though not all. Um, but there is a sense that you have a public duty and responsibility about things like this to inform people, to create a positive energy in the society. Um, whereas in America, we have a completely fractured media um, landscape. You know, you have Fox News telling its viewers what they want to know, and you have MSNBC, um, you know, telling the hashtag resistance Occupy Dem Democrats crowd what they want to hear. Um, now, in terms of messaging about the pandemic, obviously MSNBC, CNN did, did a much better job. But if you only have 40% of the population, you know, tuned in to media that are um, uh, covering this with, you know, science fact-based reporting, um, then you have, you know, the other 60% of the population who, um, you know, either thinks it's a hoax or thinks it's just like a flu and that they'll be fine. Um, and the virus doesn't care about any of that. And so, and the, the, the virus doesn't care that, you know, half of the people have been lied to for political expediency about, um, uh, how dangerous it is. And so I think that that's pretty tragic. Um, so yeah, the, the absence of centralized unified messaging is a huge, it's a glaring deficiency, I think, in our response. There are certain things about which everyone in a society needs to be on the same page. And I believe that with all my heart. And so that's why I, I think that people misunderstand China's system 
um, quite a bit. You know, they think it's just like North Korea that everyone there just praises the leader all the time. And it's, um, it's a lot more complex than that. Um, you know, they have, uh, organized their society, um, in a different way than we have organized ours. There are advantages and disadvantages to both certainly, but, um, with something like a pandemic, I think the advantages of their system uh, are pretty apparent for all well, to see. And I was going to say, I mean, there was the whole situation in China with a, a doctor blowing the whistle on on coronavirus way early on and ending up dying from that virus um, after he was kind of ignored by state media. Yeah, he was ignored at first and um, he was told to keep quiet about it. Um, that is absolutely one of the major deficiencies in, in their system. And yeah. this is something that um, many Chinese people will will tell you that they know in, in an authoritarian system. And it's the same way for me at the office. Like it trickles all the way down. Um, no one no one wants to give bad news to the person above them. Every mess, you try and resolve it yourself before you bring anyone else in. And that creates a a bureaucracy that is that gets paralyzed very easily. Yeah. Um, but you know that is a minor. And now, if you compare that to the mistakes made in Western democracies, a very forgivable mistake for many Chinese. Um, the doctor's name, uh, Li Wenliang, I think was his name. Um, he so he, he likely died because he was treating cases early on, and. Um, before we knew how contagious this was. So it's possible that even though he was young, he got such a, a high dose of the pathogen that his system just couldn't fight it off. Um, I think that people in the West need to keep a couple things in mind about him um, because, you know, Western media will, any chance they get to like poke China in the eye and say, oh, you know, look, people are rising up. They're super angry about this, this doctor. Yes, and people, there was legitimate real anger um, when Li Wen Liang died, and it definitely caught the authorities and the censors off um, uh, off kilter. But um, he was a Communist Party member. He, um, I think, was very clear that you know he saw the problems in the way the Chinese system handled this outbreak early on. Um, but he was not, you know, some, you know, radical who, uh, you know, had he not died, would, you know, be out there trying to overthrow um, the Chinese government. Um, right. he, he's not this this anti-communist hero that Western media made him into. Um, he was, if you look at pictures of him, he, you can see his Communist Party pin on. Um, so he was someone who just wanted the system to be better. Yeah, know? to to to, yeah. to be better, and I think that you know there there is awareness that this is an issue with their system, and it it could be that it will be a very hard issue for them to fix. But they have had the advantage of you know centralized, unified messaging about the virus and its dangers, and um, and people who are receptive and willing to listen because that communal sense of identity is already baked into the cake. Spencer Music is the managing editor of China Xinhua Sports in Beijing. You can find his work at xinhuanet.com slash English. Home Fried is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I produce the show, and I write and record our interstitial music. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, manages our website and marketing, and keeps the butter churning around here. 
To catch the latest season of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, be sure to tune in to 103.7 WPVM the first Friday of every month at 5 p.m. You can also catch up on our back episodes of the show, stream any of our podcasts, check out the artwork from our contributing artists, or support us through our Patreon at our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. We'll be back with new episodes of Home Fried every Tuesday and Thursday, with occasional episodes on Saturdays. To subscribe, just search for the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume on the Dirty Spoon. <laughs>